Welcome to the Art and Science of Joy podcast. This podcast is all about inspiring people to live more joyfully. So if you're seeking a bit more joy in your own life or seeking to bring some more joy to the lives of others, then this podcast could well be for you. And in the second series of the podcast, we're focusing on joy's superpowers, special powers each and every one of us can cultivate and use in our lives. I'm Andrew Cannon, and I have the honor to be your host. In each episode, I'll be inviting our guests to share their words of wisdom on a specific joy superpower, whether that's in relation to personal growth, genuine belonging, positive impact, or simply having fun. And welcome to episode seven of the Joy Superpower series. Today, I'm going to be talking with Ben Page, and together we are going to be talking about the joy superpower of being in nature. And we'll take a deep dive into the power of forest bathing. Ben is a forest therapy guide, global advocate for the practice and author of Healing Trees, a pocket guide to forest bathing. And he is founder of Shinrin Yoko LA and Integral Forest Bathing, and has been guiding forest therapy walks since 2015. So Ben, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So let's talk about nature. Um, firstly, has it been an important part of your life, your whole life, or has it been something you've discovered more recently? Absolutely something important, whole life. Um, I mean, in training guides, I hear a very similar kind of archetypal story about being born into a rich sensory relationship with nature, which I think every person is because when we're born, we don't really have the, the methods of abstraction that we lean on as adults. And we're very connected to the present moment through the intelligence of our bodies. You know, you see this if you hang out with babies or toddlers or even young children. And then eventually, I think it's usually around high school that people become so overwhelmed and so overscheduled and busy that they just lose the time that they need to really dedicate like having a sensory relationship with the world. And then they kind of forget mm. how to have that sort of relationship. And so they oftentimes have this kind of middle phase of their life where they're just moving at the speed of light, never slowing down. And then some people like yours truly <laughs> eventually have a moment of remembering and coming mm. back. I like to tell people I, I don't consider myself a teacher. I think I'm here to help people remember something. Right. It, it's embedded in every person and it lives within the intelligence of the body. So it's not that you have to learn how to do this brand new thing. It's that you're just remembering mm. how to do what your body has always known how to do. And I love the word remember. I'm kind of an etymology nerd. So okay. the word remember comes from the Latin root for memory, and mm. it means to recall something in the mind. But then there's a folk etymology of the word remember, which is the opposite of dismember. So to remember is to put our bodies back together. And that's the thing that really strikes me about the practice is it's just coming home mm. to the body. Right, so refining that sensitivity in a way that we've had from birth and childhood that innate connection Absolutely. with nature just rediscovering and resensitizing ourselves to that experience right i mean i often think of this joseph campbell quote he said i don't think people are looking for the meaning of life 
I think people are looking for the experience of being alive. Mm, that's right. And that's kind of this thing about like, I love this term of like a joy superpower. It's like the body has this superpower of being alive. Being alive is this superpower. And we tend to get caught up in this abstract world of meaning and trying to figure it all out and make things, you know, fall into some sort of grand narrative framework that gives us a sense of like, oh, I'm a good person or I'm on a good journey or, you know, whatever it is, it, right. it tends to tie all of our experience together into this grand narrative. And what I'm trying to invite people into with forest bathing is trying to say, this is, this is the only moment that exists right here and right mm. now. What would it be like to just connect with everything here without needing to fit it into some sort of meta narrative? Right. It's just to be present with the nature in that moment. Right. Right. And it, it probably has, you know, tremendous health benefits. I recently read an article by Jim Robbins in the Yale School of the Environment magazine. Um, which talks about echo psychology or mm -hmm. how he put it, how immersion in, in nature benefits your health. And he quotes in the article some research from the European Center of Environment and Human Health at the University of Exeter, quite a long name, that one, um, which found that people who spend two hours a week in green spaces, either local parks or other natural environments, and that can be either at once or spread out over se several visits, were substantially more likely to report good health and psychological well-being than those who don't. And two hours right. was a pretty hard boundary, right, that they came up with in the research. And that doesn't sound like it's impossible for most people to find two hours a week. So does that sort of support your knowledge and your own understanding? Absolutely. I mean, there's kind of different research coming from different parts of the world talking about how to quantify these physiological and psychological mm. health benefits. And yeah, it seems like a couple hours a week is generally within the range of what people are talking about. I always say one of the wonderful things about forest bathing is there's no way to overdose. So <laughs> you, you don't need to be too concerned with getting too much of it. Um, you also, you know, it's lovely. You don't need a doctor's prescription or supervision. You don't really need to worry so much about, is it the right thing? Am I doing this right? Um, it's very simple. You know, just like you said, taking a walk in a green space mm -hmm. has this massive impact. And it's interesting because in some ways this is, like this shouldn't be surprising for anyone because our species has evolved for 99.9% .9 of our history to be living outside in these green spaces. And so mm. we're literally co-evolved with nature and all of our health is dependent on those co-evolutionary relationships. There's this interesting research that uh, they're doing about just the color green. And it's not even about nature it's just about this color right. so what what the what the researchers are doing is kind of saying well what happens if we paint a hospital room green mm. what happens if we paint the inside of a prison or a jail green and one of the things that they're noticing is that there's something biological that happens when our eyes see the color green it has this incredible cascading impact on our nervous system that just calms us down and it initiates all of these self-healing mechanisms that the body has been wired to do. 
And we tend to think of medicine as something that is coming from the outside in and not something from the inside out, but it's like the body is evolved to be well and all it really needs is to be in the right environment to trigger all of those, you know, it's like we don't see monkeys with doctors or lions with doctors right. or all this. We as humans, as animals, just like any other animal, we've evolved in a very specific way to be strong and healthy organisms under the right circumstances. In the right and then you get into this yeah. kind of modern culture stuff about, yeah, we're really not evolved to be sitting on our butts all day. We're not evolved to be sitting in a chair. We're not evolved to mm. be looking at a screen all the time. Like there's kind of these very obvious transitions in our cultural history that have brought us away from what is kind of a natural healthiness. And this is not to say that modern medicine is not incredibly valuable. Yeah. Um, sometimes when I get into this topic, people say, well, are you saying we should live holistically all the time? No, of mm. course not. There's, there's room for all things, but having a baseline of health is really dependent on some very simple environmental factors. Yeah, definitely. And it was, we're not going to go down too deeply down the rabbit hole of COVID and politics. Um, but here in I, Europe, for example, you know, there were cases where, you know, you would be fined if you try to drive into the mountains, you know, to get right. some fresh air. And I just right. couldn't understand that in my mind, what would be the logic for that? You know, you're not likely to have a mass gathering or, right. you know, and that. So it just seemed really strange to me. But you mentioned this about the change to our environment. And this was a bit of research we found from the Environmental Protection Agency, which said that on average, the Americans spend 7% of their lives outdoors. I know it's shocking. It's really wild. Seven <laughs> percent. So, but what needs to change? What can we do to to get that number up? I mean, there's probably many things that can change. For me, part of the part of the thing about forest bathing is it's not just about getting people outside, but about helping people remember how to relax. Mm. Because it's, it's not just about the outside, but also that a lot of people, when they go outside, it's kind of uh, framed as like in Los Angeles, we get a lot of people exercising. And I'm not saying exercise is bad, you know, that's, that's not a problem. But having people remember how to spend time outside in social situations, how to spend mm -hmm. time outside in contemplative settings, how to just slow down, just remember that you can just go outside and sit and that you don't have to be busy all the time. Right. Um, that seems like it's a big piece. And it's mm -hmm. kind of one of the, maybe the hidden benefits of a global pandemic is I actually do see a lot more people spending their time outside because they've been told they can't gather inside. And so I'm seeing a lot more birthday parties outside, mm. I'm seeing a lot more lunches outside. And I think some cultures have this down better than we do here in the States. Um, when I travel other places, I notice people, you know, it's far more common to eat your lunch just outside. Yeah. It doesn't need to be an hour away in a pristine national park. Mm -hmm. It can just be outside in your backyard, just sitting under the trees you have around your house. So it's not just about kind of creating these experiences that are um, kind of hard to access. I think that's the thing. A lot of Americans and perhaps also people in other countries, outside time becomes bracketed as this special experience yeah. where it's like, we're gonna go 
uh, on a whitewater rafting trip, or we're going to go on a backpacking trip. And then the rest of their daily life is, like you said, about 7% of the time outside. Mm -hmm. So it's like we get these massive doses of outdoor time and then return to our daily lives with very, very little. So the question for me is, is not so much about how to increase the massive dose. It's how do you just integrate mm -hmm. small amounts of nature connection time, maybe 30 minutes a day, take a walk around your neighborhood, sit in your garden, just how do you remember how to relax outside? Because the outside is critical, but then with this forest bathing thing, it's also about how do you remember how to just do nothing? Mm -hmm. I love this Spanish expression. They say, do nothing for a while and then relax. <laughs> that is beautiful. That is beautiful because it is about that. It's about integrating into your life. And I see the two points you raise, one around this performance that, you know, nature goes somewhere where we go to compete with ourselves, to cycle faster, run faster. So it's still right. about doing things, achieving, or right. it's the other way around. It's somewhere where we go for something special, a vacation. Uh, it's not connected to our real lives. Um, right. and, and you're talking about how can we integrate um, nature into our lives. And I, for me, you know, when I see young people reading a book in a park, for right. example, that's so uplifting to see that, right? And you just see a tree and somebody sitting under the park just reading a book and you think they got it. They know what's right. important right. in life. Exactly. Yeah, so that's beautiful. So, you know, one of the other stats that I came up with, that you know, when somebody visits the Grand Canyon, on average, they spend seven minutes outside of their vehicle. Um, so I'm not sure that qualifies as spending time in nature too well. So we talked have you about ever been to the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I have. I have actually hiked not all the way down to the bottom, but um, did go down to the, the, the mess level down there. So. It's kind of one of those places where it's either it's all or nothing kind of it's it's not really conducive to a, a leisurely stroll. So mm. yeah, you park your car and then you have a decision. Am I going to hike down the Grand Canyon? <laughs> Or am I going to just look at it for a few minutes and drive away? Right, take to the next photo stop. That's for sure. That's for I sure. mean, that's the thing. Nature doesn't have to be this, uh, you know, stress mm. place. I think a lot of times people imagine these um, nature experiences as having to be very rigorous. And it's, um, you know, there's something to be said about just a total sense of relaxation. Mm. This is where I think the joy actually comes in. Like if you are using the natural environment as a setting for exercise, then the joy actually is, is kind of a chemical reaction in your brain, right? You're getting these yeah. endorphins. You feel really good. And that's actually happening in the inner nature. We could say the interior nature of our bodies, this chemical ecosystem that we are, that we live within. But I, I often use this Chinese proverb, it says, Tension is who you think you should be. Relaxation is who you are. And so this for me is where the joy of just being kind of comes into play. Because if we're going out with the tension of, I wanna be in good shape, that's the point of going outside. Mm. Then we're always carrying this amount of tension with us about who am I supposed to be? And then part of the, the magic of forest bathing for me is kind of getting people into a space where you don't even need to be you anymore. You can just be a part of this environment. 
you can just come home to this sense of relaxation where you don't have to do anything and you don't even have to really be yourself. Because mm. when, when I sit with a tree, the feeling that I get is that the tree does not relate to me as Ben Page. It's not interested in my, you know, political beliefs or my spiritual beliefs or my story. We are having a relationship at the most basic primal level of experience where like one example is we're exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide and therefore the tree values me and I value the tree below the threshold of meaning making and below the threshold of a narrative framework. We're having this very immediate relationship that doesn't require any specialness. I don't need to be like a superhero. I just get to be it the animal that I am. And the relaxation that comes out of that can be very profound because you don't have to be good. There's this wonderful Mary mm -hmm. Oliver poem where she says, you don't have to be good. And I think that's where a lot of the tension in our individual consciousness comes from. And the lack of joy is because we live in a society that kind of says, you have to be good. You have to be special. You have to keep striving. And when we can let go of that and just say, I don't need to be anything. I just need to sit here under this tree. And that is enough. That's where the kind of this whole other world of relationship kind of opens up. I think that's beautiful and so profoundly true. One question it does arise in me is the question around climate change and but specifically around climate change anxiety which I know a lot of young people in particular at the moment feel very stressed about what's happening to the environment, you know, having fundamental questions like, can I have children? Is it, is it right for me to bring people into the world? You know, really profound, anxious questions they're asking themselves. And I'm wondering what are your thoughts on, you know, could spending more time in this symbiotic way with nature actually help reduce that stress? Can it connect you in a different way to the environment? This is kind of what the next book I'm pitching my publisher is entirely about this topic. Um, I didn't even know that folks. So this wasn't planted. <laughs> um, I guess within the limited time frame we have here, I'll just say one of the things I think about is Jacques Cousteau said, people will only protect what they love. Mm. And so then my question is, well, what is love? And especially what is love between two ontologically different beings? So a human being and a tree, for example, what does it mean to love? Now, I often, when I get into this, I'll do a thought experiment with people. I'll say, all right, look, I want you to imagine, you can do this, Andrew, like imagine someone you know very well, you love someone like a sibling, child, parent, best friend. Now imagine I give you a book and it has all the facts about them. It has every single piece of data and information Mm. But you've never seen them with your eyes. You've never heard the sound of them with your ears. You've never embraced them and felt their skin on yours. You've never smelled them. You've never had any sensory contact with this person. Could you fall in love only with the facts or the idea of a person? Now, most people say no, because love is actually a somatic experience. It happens below the threshold of our thoughts. And this is something that, you know, a lot of people comment now about internet dating. They'll say, well, when I saw his profile or her profile, uh, I thought that this was the right one for me. 
And then when I met them in person, something just didn't click. You know, it, it just wasn't right. It's like our bodies weren't signaling the right things to each other. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. So forest bathing is about having an, an emotional and sensory relationship with the world around us. It's not an intellectual experience. So a lot of our, our modern uh, kind of relationship with nature is an intellectual one. It's trying to take it apart and understand what it is and define it in these very anthropocentric terms. What I'm trying to suggest to people is, you know, if you want to fall in love, you have to actually be there. Mm. And then for me, the interesting, like the kind of the, what do you call this? Like the vanguard of my thought process on this is, okay, once we start developing a sense of love, how do we move towards a sense of unconditional love with nature? Because I think we've been kind of programmed to really love only a romantic vision of what nature looks like. We have, a, we have an easy time loving the picturesque, you know, mm. the beautiful lush mountain, rivers, forests. And then we have a harder time with places that have been damaged or polluted. Mm. And I, I keep coming back. There's a Zen capping phrase that says, is not every place a place of honor? Right. And you know, in many indigenous North American traditions, they'll say all land is sacred land. And so for me, part of my process is deconstructing like a binary of there's, there's nature and then there's humans and mm. cities and civilizations. And for me, it's kind of like, how do we understand that all of this is interconnected? How do we see that all of the land, all of the beings that live upon the land are somehow enmeshed in a relationship that we are not separate from? And so then as we move forward, we start to cultivate a sense of unconditional love, which is not necessarily about demanding stasis. It's about falling in love with a dynamic and living being. That's one of the interesting things about love. I mean, sometimes I talk to friends kind of as their armchair therapist. You know, I'm not a psychotherapist. <laughs> but they'll say, oh, Ben, you, you know a lot about relationships. Right. What do you think about this? And sometimes they'll say something like, well, I love this person when I met them and now they're different, and I don't know if I love them anymore. Mm. I'll say, well, that's really interesting, and I don't know if I have a good answer for you, because you know, you have to make up your own mind about whether you want to be with this person or not, but if you consider the concept of an unconditional love, what you're signing up for is loving the mystery of this person as they unfold. You're saying, I'm going to love you today, tomorrow, and the day after that, knowing that the person is not static, that you're going to change and that love is like a thing about, you know, an experience of constant surprises. And there's something quite beautiful about that, but it's also very challenging. Mm. So when I talk to young people about this, I'm certainly not suggesting that we give up and just say, well, you know, we'll love the world if it's a flaming ball of, of mess, you know, say, well, how do we fall in love with a dynamic changing world? Mm. Because, we're living in a window of ecological time where things are changing. And I mean, my personal opinion is that humans are driving a lot of that change, but change is fundamental to the system of of nature that we live in on this planet. You know, sometimes I I like to to drop this little figure on people. I'll say, it's kind of mind bending that humans have been here for 200,000 years 
and the longest ice age was 300 million years long. And so when I think about the intelligence of the planet, like for me, I think of the planet as a unified ecological system that balances itself. And the intelligence of this system can say, I'm going to put everything on pause for 300 million years so that after that's done, we can reform all of the life structures, all of the biological Mm. environmental structures that are going to create an entirely new ecological system. And so I think for people who are grappling with ecological grief and anxiety, part of the thing is about actually it's grappling with our own impermanence Mm. as individuals and as a species and as a global society that are like a lot of our spiritual and religious structures are based on the idea of a transcendent permanence that somehow there's something about us that will never go away and when i look into nature i kind of feel like that's not how everything else works Um, it's all cycling and recycling into itself so part of what we're doing is having a real psycho-spiritual grappling with what does it mean to be nature Mm -hmm. yeah and that's on a personal level on a human level on a on a total symbiosis level so it happens on all of those levels within that and you know for me i think there's something very hopeful at the end of the tunnel there's a author who wrote a book called dark ecology and he kind of describes the same hope at the end of the tunnel but when you go into that darkness of seeing that everything falls apart and comes back together at the end of it, there's kind of this feeling of belongingness yeah. and that like what I am, this body is nature. And then before this body came into being, I was still nature. And then after this body, I'll, I'll still be nature. The me is kind of an illusion. The right. joy is in actually being enmeshed in this whole universe, this whole material system Mm -hmm. And that even though the story of Ben Page is a short-lived one, you know, it comes in and out of being this, but my bones are made out of the earth. My blood is made out of the water. Like this thing that I am has been everything before it and will become everything after it. And when you kind of can let go of the story of ourselves, there's this well, for me, I'll say, there's this incredible joy of belonging to this place and that I'm not here to control it. I'm just along for the ride and there's so much beauty. There's so much beauty in the ride. But I think a lot of us, we get into this kind of archetypal character of the savior. Mm. We put the responsibility on ourselves and then we start seeing nothing but problems and ugliness and we can get trapped inside of that anxiety so easily. And then we lose the beauty because we don't see it anymore. We just see everything as a problem. Right. And we see it as our responsibility to deal with that. And as an individual, it's quite often hard to think about how you can save the polar bears um, right. or the ice caps from melting. Right. And therefore, it's not in your sphere of control and becomes more stressful than helpful at right. that point. One of the and interesting things... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, one of the interesting things on beauty, and somebody told me, you know, that we, we fall in love with the, with the trees, we fall in love with the water, but we rarely fall in love with the dirt. 
and the soil is so important for Absolutely. everything in nature but perhaps we don't recognize and we don't put our hands in it enough and right. thank it for what it gives us in terms of life just because it's ugly and it feels right. <laughs> well and it's like this thing with decay or death mm. that you know when you actually see what it is it's so beautiful because it's feeding emergent life yeah and so we we tend to have a reaction i think because it's this mirror effect of we don't like death within us mm. and we don't like suffering within us and so we externalize that onto the other beings of the world and say oh i don't want to see the dead tree without recognizing that the dying is this equally beautiful part of the tree's life cycle. So we're grappling with these inner things and then projecting them onto the external world. And then for me, part of this whole thing is coming back to this like joy superpower of love or an unconditional mm. love is that we're also remembering what grieving is and that grieving is also praising that you right. grieve what you love. So instead of this kind of like um, fighting, you know, saying um, a resisting, like, I don't want it, I'm gonna push this away, mm. I'm gonna try to fix the problem. If we could remember how to grieve, which is an extension of our love and saying, you know, yeah. I'm gonna praise this thing because that's what it deserves. That's such a powerful place to come from because it's not rooted in fear. Yeah. It's rooted in this real sense of love for the world. And I think this is kind of just the whole transformation of our psychology that, that will be unfolding for the next hundred years or so because it's inevitable. This like we're going, we're, we're going to live through a massive ecological change right now, one way or another. You know, it could be fine. Like it, you know, I, I have so much. Uh, respect and adoration for these young people who are coming up with these incredible new ideas so outside of the box and I think there's a distinct possibility we kind of pull ourselves out of this nosedive and that the world will you know continue to look something like it will however along the way we're probably going to lose some species and we're probably going to lose some places and things are going to look really different and it's not about kind of solving a problem. It's about how do we remember how to fall in love so that we can have grief and praise in that space. Yeah, and, and I think that's, uh, that's the emotional thing that I think a lot of people aren't fully plugged into that it's, it's not just about the outer activism. It's also about a subjective activism or like I sometimes call it an activism of our hearts mm. that we need to transform the way we perceive reality in order to have access to that level of joy. Yeah, nature can help us with that. I remember in Finland, you know, I'm lucky here that we have so much forest and some of my favorite forests are the ones where they just let things rot and decay as they fall. Yes. And, and you see the new life that springs from that decay. It might yes. look from first experience, it's a mess, it, it, it's ugly. But when you really look into it, you see its natural beauty and how that death is allowing many forms of new life to take its place. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to get us into the nitty gritty of forest bathing. Um, right. Because we talked a lot about nature in general, but let's talk about forest bathing and specifically about integral forest bathing. 
And so many of our listeners might not know what that is. So if you could give us sort of the one minute version of sure. what that means. Well, forest bathing quite simply is just a process of being outside in a relaxed way. I think that's the easiest way to explain it. It's um, not exercise and it's not learning. It's just learning how to be in a place and how to connect to that place through the senses. So having a sense, I think curiosity really is the driving force for a lot of people that, you know, do you know what soil actually smells like? Do you know what bark mm. actually smells like? Do you know what leaves actually feel like? A lot of people think that they know already. And then when they actually are inside the experience, it's kind of mind bending because it defies their expectation. So having a sensory relationship yeah. with nature, looking deeply, smelling deeply, hearing, like it's all happening around us. But because we spend so much time thinking, the brain filters out most of the details of the world around us. And so it's coming back into a relationship where you are really paying attention. That's how I'll describe forest bathing in a nutshell. In and nutshell. then the way I describe integral forest bathing, which is just... The, the way I practice it. Um, integral forest bathing incorporates the idea that nature is not only outside of us, but also inside of us. That we're understanding something that is diminishing the sense of separateness mm. between what we consider ourselves and what we consider the world around us. So part of the big trip for me has been kind of deepening into an understanding that my body is an ecosystem and it's a porous ecosystem, that things are coming in, being transformed and coming out constantly all the time. And that this ecosystem has an intelligence that doesn't require my mental attention for it to work. This is kind of where I was doing a forest bathing walk the other day and there were quite a few um, flies. And we always start with kind of a somatic meditation and it was interesting just observing my body without controlling it at all. There were moments where the flies would land on my skin and my skin wouldn't react at all. It would just say, okay, that's fine. You can be there. And then there were other times where it felt like, have you ever seen horses flip their tails right. when the flies come? And it was like my arm would kind of flip like the horse's tail. And I, I spent about 20 minutes doing this and it was fascinating just trying to take a step back from having control over the body and to just witness how the body interacts with its environment and to notice that the body has its own determination of when it wants to flip the tail. You know, in this mm. case, it's my arm. But it's this interesting thing where the body has, you could call it motivation or ideas that are happening all the time below the threshold of our conscious attention. And so when we open up this awareness that, you know, the body is more than half of the cells in your body are not coded from human DNA. Mm -hmm. So you're a walking ecosystem that is built up of many different organisms and the interactions between those organisms is creating a very dynamic ecosystem inside of you, which is then in relationship to all the ecosystems around it. And that for me is kind of the cutting edge because it's like the big question for me with my work is always how to help people understand that you are nature mm -hmm. and that everything is nature. There is no sense of separation. And the more you can relax into that, the less tension you will feel. Yeah, and one of my personal experiences on that is that we have become in a way over-dependent upon sight 
as mm. our leading sense. And that guides so much of our thoughts that, but it tricks us, right. tricks us very much. Um, and when you close your eyes in nature and just feel or smell or touch or even taste, those senses really heighten once you've deprived yourself of sight and your experience Absolutely. changes quite dramatically, I right. think, through that. And then even sight, we tend to use only a very small fraction of our capacity to see because, you know, it's this thing about the details. Right. Like, people probably know what, uh, like, a maple leaf looks like in the abstract sense, mm. but then when you really get, you know, one centimeter away from it, it's like this whole world. It's like there's all of this visual data that you just never slowed down enough mm. to really recognize. And the way that our eyes can see movement in the world is interesting because it's like from a distracted place, we think that the world is kind of moving a little bit. And then when you zoom in and zoom in and zoom in, you start to notice like every single thing is moving constantly. Mm. The world is so much more dynamic than we give it credit for being because we think that we're the main characters in the story and that right. the earth is just a setting for our stories when in reality there's a million other stories happening and we're just not really paying attention attention to them and those are some beautiful stories that are taking place yeah. around us in just their right. simplicity yes um, but they're equally valuable for that. So if we think about, you know, many people live in cities um, and I suppose is that one of the challenges people feel that the forest is something far away and how do we get a feeling to, how can people get the benefits from forest bathing even if they are in downtown LA, for example, how far do you have to go? Yeah, well, so there's a, there's a proverb from, Japan that says that the master meditates in the town square while the novice meditates in the meditation hall. Right. And I think this kind of applies to, to this. Like for me, when I started doing forest bathing, doing nature connection work, I felt it really supported me to go into a very natural place mm -hmm. like a national forest or a national park or something like that. And after years of doing this, I find I can do this very easily in downtown Los Angeles in a little pocket park or an urban farm or something like that. But it's hard at the beginning because you've, you've built up such a lifelong way of perceiving reality that, you know, this isn't nature. I'm not in nature right now. Mm. I'm in the city. But then when you start to deconstruct that, you start to say, well, there is sky and cloud and bird and tree and wind and water and rock. And then you start looking at the cars and the buildings and the people and their clothing. And you say, where did this all come from? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's all just nature. It's just been rearranged. Yeah. And then you start really unpacking that and you can see that there is no separation really. It's all in our heads. It's a story that we live within. But I think if you can start by going out to a more natural space, maybe you have access to an arboretum or a local park, something like that, that can be a great place to start. And then as you develop more competency and just being curious about the sensory elements of the world around you, uh, you can start doing this literally anywhere. And it's kind of this coming back to this thing about all land is sacred. Mm. It's like 
there are relationships that are waiting to be formed in all places. So sitting, I mean, I had this funny experience the other day, I was taking a walk through my neighborhood and I noticed one of my neighbors had put in artificial grass, which okay. in my mind is so triggering. Like immediately upon seeing it, I felt a little bit angry and judgmental and like, ah. And then when I noticed that my mind was spiraling through that, it kind of, I kind of had like a moment of awakening of like, okay, I'm curious, what is it like to stand with my feet upon the grass? And the sensation was actually very interesting. And then I come back to remembering that plastic is just made out of the bones of dinosaurs. And then it's like this almost cosmic feeling of what does it mean to connect to this plastic that's made out of oil? What does this actually feel like? And it's not just the sensory feeling, but the emotional experience yeah. that is galvanized by that sensory experience. And then you start having this kind of sensory relationship with the world, no matter where you are and what you're doing. I, I always tell people really, um, if we're talking about this from like a health science perspective, yeah you really want to go to a good forest. <laughs> like That's where you're going to get a lot of the physiological health benefits. But if we're talking about this from more of like a psycho-spiritual perspective, mm. then when you develop the ability to see no separation, you start to have a very rich relationship with what we call nature that is non-binary. It's not that you're looking for the trees and the flowers you're seeing the concrete as the rock, you know? Yeah. You're seeing the telephone pole as the metals that were harvested from the rock. And you just start touching and you start smelling, you start seeing and you start having an intense curiosity about what is this world? Right. And how do I fit in? And how does the ecosystem of my body relate to the ecosystems around me? Mm. And then you really can start doing this everywhere. And that for me is kind of where part of the joy is, is not feeling angry that we've transformed the world, not having a sense of judgment about, oh, Los Angeles used to be this really beautiful, wonderful, natural space, and now it's this piece of crap mm. because we've ruined it. Ruined it, yeah. So instead saying, well, is that how the rock feels? Is that how all beings feel? Or is there still a dynamic relationship that is unfolding here that is going to take a long time? I mean, I think of relationships as infinite games. We don't get to the end of it and feel satisfied. It's like mm. I was telling you about the mystery. Yes. There's yeah. something about the unfolding quality of place that you're, you're embedded in it. You are a part of it, but it doesn't really cater to what you desire. So if you want to find love in that place, you have to let go of demanding that love is what you want it mm. to be. There's a great quote from a, a woman and I'm forgetting her name. She says, you don't get to choose how people love you. You get to decide whether you want to participate in that love. In that experience. Mm. That's kind of how I, I notice people having a relationship with their environment where if you have a wildfire, something that transforms the land drastically, the way I interpret it is that the land is still reaching out for love, but sometimes people can't do it. They mm. can't participate in that. It's too painful for them. 
And I don't have any judgment about that either. So then maybe they leave and they go somewhere where they are choosing to be inside of a love experience that feels right for them. And then for me personally, I work a lot with this unconditional love question. Mm. So it's like, well, it's in some ways more challenging to be loved by a place that is in transformation. So I get to choose whether I want to participate in that love or not. Yeah, that, that's really powerful. So you saying, I suppose, the, in conclusion, you would say that for somebody beginning on this journey, it is probably worth going to find some more pristine nature to reap the physical, the, the mental benefits from it's, forest bathing. It's like this thing about remembering where it's a lot easier to remember when you're in the pristine, lush wilderness environment or even the more cultivated yet still natural environment like a garden or an arboretum. Yeah. It's just, it's easier for the body to remember and our minds have an easier time relaxing because mm. they're not so plagued by judgmental binary thoughts. And then what I encourage people to do is just kind of, you know, scaffold their experience outward from that very natural setting towards what we could call less, you know, quote, less natural settings. And then slowly but surely, I think people can find relationships in all places and I always tell people, you know, the, sometimes people want to say, well, where's the best place to go forest? Mm. And I always tell people the best place is the land that you live on. Cause that's where the depth of relationship is the, the most potent. Sometimes there's kind of an ecotourism thing with forest mm. bathing where it's like, Oh, I want to go to this really magical, amazing forest. That's 400 miles away from my house. And I kind of tell people, well, look, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm sure it was wonderful, but it's like with human relationships, like if you hang out with someone every single day versus you hang out with them once, how deep can a relationship mm. go? And the more that you know a place, the more that it knows you. So it's a reciprocal process of knowing and being known. And then you really, like with my backyard, it's kind of this thing where I, I've now started to understand the cycles of the animals and they're having babies yeah. and when I'm gonna see the babies and the plants and their cycles, the weather and its cycles. And you start to really be able to kind of feel that you are inside of this experience and that it, it's, you're getting to know it really mm -hmm. well. And you just can't do that if you only go to a place for a few hours or a few days. So I always encourage people just start with the land you live on. Mm. It's going to be the land that really welcomes you and really is like reaching out to have that relationship. Yeah. Even if you live in the city, even if this is basically like sitting by the window and watching clouds or going mm. to your local park or whatever it is, um, I think that's the place. Where yeah, I think that's great. And for two levels, I see the le the level of the integration because that's your environment where you're spending most of your time. So therefore, the integration happens more naturally for you in that environment. And, and secondly, the familiarity perhaps allows you to see the details, you know, because right. you've looked at that tree a hundred times, a thousand times. So you notice the subtle changes in it if you look a lot than if you went to Yosemite and you'd never seen that part of the forest before, you'd have no idea whether that was any different 
five years ago or a week ago, or it was just a tree. That you can create a different relationship with something that's in your garden. Right. So I really love that. Could you just summarize, if you had to name, you know, what would you say are the top three benefits of forest bathing in general for people? If some people are wondering, should I do this? If you had to give them the elevator pitch of. Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit subjective. It depends on who you ask. Um, <clears throat> I guess number one, we'll go with a health science one. Um, which is that your immune system will get stronger mm -hmm. just by hanging out with trees. Your immune system will get stronger and you'll be less susceptible to some very serious diseases like cancer, cardiovascular risk, immune functioning. That feels like um, it's usually the thing that gets people through the door. Right. Um, a lot of people get into forest bathing because they're using it as an adjunctive or preventative treatment for cancer or autoimmune mm. disease. I'll say the second benefit is probably a sense of tranquility mm. or peacefulness. Um, this kind of happens just by the impact of slowing down. I think a lot of people come into forest bathing because they've tried meditation and they find that it drives them insane. Like <laughs> they're like, I, I can't focus only on the internal, the breath or yeah. the watching the thoughts arise and diminish. Um, there's something about forest bathing that we're absorbed in a sensory world. And so it's as if you're hyper-focused and not focused at all. Mm. It's what um, the Kaplan's attention restoration, restoration theory talks about what are called soft fascinations, where essentially your brain is operating at a very low level because you don't need to think a lot about colors or mm. shapes you just see them, you experience them, but they don't require a lot of analysis. Right. And so your brain goes into almost a meditative state because you're not really trying that hard to just be here. Nice. And then I guess the third thing for me is kind of this, perhaps what we could call a psycho-spiritual benefit of just feeling related to the land. I like using related over connected Mm. For me, it's like diminishing the sense of separateness, understanding that the, the world is not a setting for my journey, but that the world is on its own journey and mm. that I'm just a very small part of that, but that I belong in it. Belong. And so my belongingness is not conditional on my goodness or on my success. It's like there's an unconditional love that is extended towards us mm. from the land because it doesn't have an expectation of us. And that's kind of where we, we can feel a, there's, this is where you have that bittersweetness of like, I, I can only save you so much. I can only love you so much, mm. but it's the joy of being able to be in that relationship and to do anything at all that feels good. Right. When I take people forest bathing, there's a structure of, of invitations that we offer. And one of the invitations that I've been playing with recently is having people carry water with their hands from the creek to plants around the creek. And this woman said to me afterwards, you know, I was kind of sad because I wanted to water all the plants and I could only water a few. And with, with carrying this water in my hands, I could only offer them a very small amount. 
Mm. And I said, well, that's so beautiful because that's kind of what this is all about in a way that we're, we're trying to offer what we can, mm. not with the idea that we're going to do a perfect job and save everything, but that this is the nature of a relationship that you, you give what you can, you try, you know, yeah. you make an effort and there's compassion there. And you also don't have to bear the responsibility of saving or fixing mm. or making it all better because this is also part of the experience is being with the challenge and the struggle. And that's what aliveness really feels like in a way. I think in some ways our modern lives are so comfortable and cushy. I was reading this um, article about Charles Darwin and his daughter who died very young and he had 10 children. And I was reading this article and remembering that for most of human history, death was something that we just lived with all the time. Mm. People and especially young people just dying all the time. And it doesn't mean you don't love. It doesn't mean you give up. It doesn't mean it's like, this is so bad. This world is so bad. I can't deal mm. with it. So now we're kind of coming back into a remembering process about what suffering is and how to live with it and how to be with it and how to support what can live. Right. And it's interesting. I don't know if you've seen the film, My Octopus Teacher. Oh, yes. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And just that, the way that he would have somehow wanted to interfere and save the octopus and right. realize that's not his role. Right. That's not his job. It's just to be a right. part of the, the story, part of the journey and have unconditional love for everything yeah. in that ocean. Yeah, I think <laughs> ocean bathing sounds like a kind of different thing, but it's kind of that same thing with mm. my octopus teacher, just having a real relationship that isn't about control or coercion, but about kind of this friendship of being with instead of being with in a way that says, I, I need to make sure that you do the thing I want you to do. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, for him saying also it was the forest there, the kelp forest, even though we don't right. see it, right? It's that whole ecosystem. And right. the octopus is just one part of that. No right. more valuable than the hermit crab or the or the tiger right. shark that was trying to kill it. Um, right. Right. Equally valuable. Um, we're going to have to end here, um, but I'd like to end then with one question always, which we always ask our guests. Um, what brings you joy? Mm. I guess being alive, <laughs> the awareness of my aliveness brings me a lot of joy. Simple things like breathing, mm. touching or smelling, seeing, hearing, just this immediate intimate connection with the world, slowing down enough to remember how to be in that. That is beautiful. That is certainly one way to experience joy. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today on the power of being in nature and on forest bathing. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Great. And I hope you, our listeners, feel inspired and empowered by my chat with Ben today about the superpower of being in nature and the ability of forest bathing to add more joy to your own life as well as to the lives of your loved ones. If so, please visit www.integralforestbathing.com to learn more. And why not hop onto social media and using the hashtag at Joy Superpowers, share your own experience of being in nature and of forest bathing. And if you don't do so already, please follow the Art and Science of Joy on Instagram, Facebook, and or LinkedIn. Come and join the conversation and help us spread the joy. Thanks once again for listening. 
And I hope you tune in next week for the next episode of the Art and Science of Joy podcast. Thank you. And thank you, Ben.